So I'm going to get right into things this morning. This is our last teaching in our series on faith in the exile. Throughout the summer, as I think most of you know, we've been considering this era in the biblical narrative known as the Babylonian exile, when the people who had once been known as Israel had their government destroyed, they found themselves separated from their land, they were living as exiles in a place that was not their own. It was a season of prolonged crisis, communal trauma, one that lasted roughly 60 to 70 years. We've looked at texts that are believed to have come from this time of the exile, and we've thought about how the words that their community was processing in their time of prolonged crisis might, might be instructive for us in our own. Because for many of us, let's be honest, 2020 has been an exile. It's become almost a cultural cliche, I think, at this point. Another strange or bizarre or just totally horrible thing happens, and we find ourselves half laughing, half crying, responding like, 2020, am I right? This has been, and it continues to be, a really challenging year. And as COVID distancing continues, as our wildfire season reaches epic proportions and our contentious presidential election looms, it feels like this exile reality is going to be, gonna be perhaps even beyond 2020. Now, eventually, the Babylonian exile did end, as Second Isaiah had predicted that it would. The Persian nation led by King Cyrus conquered the Babylonians, and Cyrus decided not to keep the exiles from Judah stuck in Babylon, so he sent home those who wanted to return to the land from which they'd been separated, and, and he supported them going home and rebuilding this capital city and the temple that the Babylonians had destroyed. And a group of exiles, most likely the children and grandchildren of some of the people who'd been brought over, um, did return. Um, to what had been once their promised land. Many others actually stayed in the homes they'd established in Babylon. But that period of forced separation from the homeland was over. We're not there yet. Our return from exile has not come. There is no viable vaccine presently. The rainy season hasn't come to bring an end to fire. We haven't passed a Green New Deal to aggressively combat climate change. No new president has been elected. So to end this conversation with like a focus on the return from exile to me feels premature. Instead, I want to spend this last part of our discussion around this exile considering the legacy that remains from the exile season in the Jewish faith and the faiths like ours, the Jesus-centered faiths, that have been influenced by it. You see, the ways that this spiritual tradition was shaped, the legacy that endures from that time in Babylon, that's about what was happening not at the end, but throughout those years of exile. The legacy was the result of years of muddling through challenge and adapting because of it. And as we continue to be in the midst of our own ongoing exile, my hope is that this legacy might be instructive for us as we consider how we continue to survive and adapt throughout this challenging 2020, as well as what the legacy might be that we have in the future as a result. 
For today's teaching, we're not going to focus on just like a primary text or set of texts because that, I think, won't tell us really what we want to consider. Instead, I'm just going to pull back and look at what scholars would tell us they observe, looking at all the documentation we have about the people of Israel and Judah, how they evolve in the time in the exile. What are some of the big takeaways about how their tradition was shaped by that time? In what ways did they become a community that was different than they were before? I'm going to just share three general observations, takeaways, about how this spiritual tradition we call Judaism was really formed by this exile, and consider how for each of them those adaptations in the exile might also be instructive for us. So the first big takeaway I think is worth noting is this. The community in the exile recognizes their vulnerability, and they understand what they can no longer take for granted. The community recognizes their vulnerability, and they understand what they can no longer take for granted. Despite the words of warning from prophets over decades, maybe even centuries leading up to the invasion from Babylon, the exile took the people of Judah by surprise. They collectively were not ready for what was coming. They could not believe it would happen to them. They seemed to see themselves as invulnerable. They, they, they seemed to believe they had this status as, as God's chosen people, the descendants of Abraham, and that that would protect them from any danger. Let's remember Ezekiel, one of the prophets of the exile, who prophesied leading up to and in those early years of the exile. He calls out this false sense of invulnerability that the people felt because of their heritage. After, right after hearing about the destruction of Jerusalem, right when it was fresh, Ezekiel said these words. Then the word of the Lord came to me. Son of man, the people living in those ruins in the land of Israel are saying, Abraham was only one man, yet he possessed the land, but we are many. Surely the land has been given to us as our possession. Therefore say to them, this is what the sovereign Lord says. Since you eat meat with the blood still in it and look to your idols and shed blood, should you then possess the land? You rely on your sword. You do detestable things. Each of you defiles his neighbor's wife. Should you then possess the land? I will make the land a desolate waste and her proud strength will come to an end, and the mountains of Israel will become desolate, so no one will cross them. Then they will know that I am the Lord when I have made the land a desolate waste because of all these detestable things they have done. So here the people's attitude is one of invulnerability. They are convinced God gave their ancient ancestor this land. It's not going to be taken away. You could see they feel like entitled to this privilege that they have received. They don't question their place of dominance over the land. And God is confronting their sense of entitlement, saying just because they're Abraham's descendants doesn't mean they can't be booted from the land for bad behavior. I don't know about you, but this week this word rings in a haunting way to me. We're currently experiencing the worst wildfire season on record. And frighteningly, it's only mid-September. 
Our orange skies on Wednesday had many in the Bay Area who aren't people that normally reference the Bible thinking about apocalyptic words in scripture that describe billows of smoke and a sun turned black. Our land is becoming a desolate waste as this earth is crying out to us that we are destroying her. And if we don't change course, the results will continue to be devastating. The most tragic thing is this is not new information. Like the prophets of old leading up to the exile, we have had prophets telling us for quite some time that the way we collectively have been living is not sustainable. But by and large, the warnings have not broken through, particularly those with the most political and economic power. They have been immobilized for decades definitely at the influence of special interests, but perhaps also shielded by their own sense of invulnerability, that nothing that's been forecast is really gonna hurt them. And it's not just in regards to climate change that I think many of us have to recognize our own internalized senses of invulnerability in recent years. Those of us with racial and moderate economic privilege particularly those of us who are white, who grew up in middle or upper-class America, for much of our lives, we may have had a sense that because we had the good fortune of being born when and where we did, nothing too terrible would happen to us. Sure, the United States of America wasn't perfect, it was never perfect, but overall it was a good a place to be, a place of relative stability, even opportunity, relatively safe, the US was a beacon of higher education. There was a sense that if a big crisis came our way, the United States could likely have the resources and expertise on hand to handle it. Some might have even believed that sense of security had some theological grounding. God blesses the USA. Perhaps more than any time in recent memory, the last four years under the Trump administration have revealed how faulty that logic is. We are not now, nor have we ever been, invulnerable. We are not invulnerable to foreign interference in our elections. We are not invulnerable to special interests destabilizing and eroding our democracy. We are not invulnerable to racial terror and, pol and police brutality. We are not invulnerable to protesters being snatched off the streets or violence in our neighborhoods or devastating viruses or calamitous fires. As much as we don't want to admit it, we are contingent. And like it was for those who had grown up in Judah prior to the exile, recognizing our vulnerability can be a horribly painful process even as it is ultimately a fundamental one. You see, part of the legacy for those who were taken to exile was that in the exile, as the people came to recognize what they could no longer take for granted, a new kind of spirituality actually emerged one that was unique amongst its neighbors at that point in human history. 
Israel and Judah were not the only ones to have a sense of divinely given invulnerability. Throughout the ancient world, religion and national identity, tribal identity, these were completely intertwined. If a nation had political success, if a tribe had success, it was understood to be the work of that nation or tribe's local gods. When a nation failed, the gods failed with them. And the particular set of practices that went with the worship of those gods disappeared. The most natural course would have been for the Babylonian exile to have the same result. Babylon devastated Judah. They took their land, they ended their monarchy, they destroyed their temple, and they carted their people off to, off to their city to live amongst them. That is how you kill a culture, and with it usually a religion. That is how you erase and assimilate a people group. And usually it worked. With when the Assyrians took over the northern kingdom of Israel, the 10 tribes of Israel, it seemed to have worked. Whoever wasn't killed was assimilated into Assyrian culture in a way that was unrecoverable. Those 10 tribes simply vanished from the historical record. But in Babylon, the community of exiles didn't simply stop worshiping Yahweh, concluding that like this whole religion they'd been raised with was just a sham. Rather, for some reason, their community adapted. It developed a new kind of religion that was different than any of the other ancient neighbors because this religious community wasn't confined to a certain place and a certain government structure. This religion wasn't built on the assumptions of privilege. It was built from the underside of oppression. This was a religion that was transformed by trauma to be a faith that was more resilient. So where did the people find that resilience? That brings me to my next observation about the legacy of the exile. In exile, the community identifies a common identity and hope beyond the trauma of exile. I'll say that again. The community identifies a common identity and hope beyond the trauma of exile. One of the things we've spoken of before is the way that storytelling and remembrance played a vital role for the exiles in maintaining their spirituality in the wake of trauma. Rather than simply dispersing in Babylon, the exiles told their stories, repeating their oral traditions they'd inherited for centuries, also combining those with, with more recent texts that have been written down, and compiling these all together right, to create the first version of what we call the Hebrew Bible. They looked to these stories to understand how they'd gotten to where they were and how to make meaning of their circumstances. And that creation of the early Bible itself is, of course, a huge part of the exile's legacy. But today I just want to hone in on this particular part of that work because I think it's easy to, to take for granted or overlook. The people who shared these stories with each other we're identifying with these stories together, recognizing ways in which their shared stories now connected them to one another in a unique way and set them apart from their Babylonian neighbors. And as they reclaimed these stories, they gave the community of exile an identity and a hope 
that was beyond their present circumstances, beyond just this trauma of being in Babylon, and reminded them that they were a part of a bigger story, a story that held them together and gave them something to look towards, even in exile. So one of the ancient stories that evolved in a powerful way for the people in the era was the story of Abraham, this ancestor that Ezekiel had referenced. Before the exile, it seems, connection to Abraham was a, so a source of entitlement and privilege, as we saw. It would be easy for it to be abandoned when that privilege let them down. But the opposite thing seems to happen. If we look at documents created before, during, and after the exile, we see that people in the exile evolve in the way they consider Abraham and his story. Some of this has to do with their positioning. Before the exile, they were in that dominant social position in which it was easy to take their ancestral heritage for granted. Everyone they knew shared it, and they all had some relative power because of it. But now they're in a different land where they're in the minority. Now their heritage was what united them with others who'd come from Judah. They were the children of Abraham in a cultural setting where most of their neighbors weren't. To focus on the heritage that began with Abraham was, was to be unified with others in exile around something that wasn't simply the trauma they were now experiencing. Rather, they were now connected as the minority group in this foreign land by this shared heritage they claimed. Their telling of Abraham's story shifted from being a story of privileged triumph to a story of journeying and faith. In the story of Abraham, they began to see a model for their own story. The hope of Abraham became their own hope. You can see it in the way they write down the story during the exile. Biblical scholars point out that the way that the story is written in Genesis gives us a sense of a connection and concern of those in the, ex those in the exile who wrote it down. The story of Abraham starts this way in Genesis 11. Terah took his son Abram, his grandson Lot, son of Haran, and his daughter-in-law Sarai, the wife of his son Abram, and together they set out from Ur of the Chaldeans to go to Canaan. But when they came to Haran, they settled there. I'm going to stop there to point out what we likely miss reading this millennia later, but biblical scholars say it's really important to note. What's interesting here is the terminology for where Abram, who would become Abraham, was coming from. Ur of the Chaldeans is what Genesis says. What's significant about saying his family came from there? What's significant is that historically it doesn't make sense, at least as, as you and I would typically think of history. The Chaldeans were a tribal group that overtook the, air, the like, region of Babylon not too long before the exile. Ur was a city in that region. We have a map. I'll show you. And here in the map, you can see both Ur, Ur of the Chaldeans. You can see Babylon. They're in the same region. You can also look up and see Haran, if you look up. And that, that right there, you can see the journey from Ur to Haran and eventually over to Canaan. It's the same journey. I'll, I'll show you again now the map we've been looking at that the exiles had taken to go from Judah to Babylon. And now they see this story of their ancestor taking the same journey. Now again, the Chaldeans 
wouldn't have been a thing in the era, Ur of the Chaldeans was not a thing in the era that if there was a historical character named Abram, he, he wouldn't, it wouldn't have been that city, it wouldn't have been that people group from which he would have emerged. They weren't, they weren't a thing. But this tells us that the way that those in exile are telling the story is intentional. They're making the point. This is not just a story of an ancestor coming from any ancient homeland. This is an, our ancestor coming from the place we ourselves are now in, traveling the same route we have traveled because God was calling them there. Well, the story doesn't stop there. Abram now in Haran hears from God in this following chapter. The Lord had said to Abram, go from your country, your people, and your father's household to the land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you. And I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse. And all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. The story the exiles are telling is about an ancestor who was in the same region they were in, being called by God to take a journey, a journey that would bring blessing for generations to Abraham's descendants, them, but also to the whole world. Now their heritage is not about their own entitlement. It's about their emerging mission and call, a call to participate in the blessing of the whole earth. This itself is an important evolution in theology that we see in the exile. Here, a hope emerges that Yahweh is more than just a local or national deity. Yahweh is beyond the tribal and national deities that every surrounding tribe and nation have. This is a new idea in history that, that Yahweh could be a God over the whole earth and whose promise for blessing would extend in time to every tribe and nation, the whole earth. This kind of a Yahweh could be worshipped from anywhere, from Israel or Judah or Babylon. And this kind of a God is not just about blessing the dominators, standing with the monarchies like Israel and Judah had recently been. These stories remind the people in exile they were not always powerful. Theirs is the God who champions the underdog who regularly called people not simply into triumphant conquest and victory and dominance, but into a more winding and wondrous journey of faith. Theirs is the God who builds a nation through an infertile couple named Abraham and Sarah. Theirs is the God who revealed God's own self first to a pregnant slave girl in the desert named Hagar. Theirs is the God who stands with scapegoated Joseph and brings him to a place of restoration that saves his people. This is the God that speaks to a man named Moses through a burning bush and calls this person who'd prefer not to speak in public to be the leader that ushers God's people out of slavery. These stories now remind the people from Judah that their heritage has not just been privilege, it has been struggle. It has been challenge. It has been at times beautiful and victorious and at times devastating. But the, the constant has been and continues to be a connection with a divine creator that goes beyond the present place or set of circumstances to journey with them through a bigger story that is enduring. Toward the end of the exile, another prophet speaks to the people 
about their heritage in the Abraham story. But here we see the prophet in second Isaiah is no longer critiquing the people for the way that they're regarding their history like Ezekiel had done. Instead, the prophet is offering that shared history as a sign of hope and inspiration. We see it in second Isaiah in these words. Listen to me, you who pursue righteousness and who seek the Lord. Look to the rock from which you were cut and to the quarry from which you were hewn. Look to Abraham, your father, and to Sarah, who gave you birth. When I called him, he was only one man, and I blessed him and made him money. The Lord will surely comfort Zion and will look with compassion on all her ruins. He will make her deserts like Eden, her wastelands like the the garden of the Lord, joy and gladness will be found in her, thanksgiving and the sound of singing. Our heritage can be a source of hope. I recently watched a documentary series after our friend Deborah recommended it. It was a series in two parts called The Vote that PBS recently produced on the suffrage movement and women achieving the right to vote, which finally happened 100 years ago this fall. And the film series does a great job of pointing out how the conversations around suffrage that we've often had really simplified what took place. Women were given the right to vote in 1920, is often what our history books have taught us. As if this natural progress of history and like the genuine goodness of the United States and its genuine enlightenment, enlightened, you know, ability, somehow naturally express themselves in this right being extended to those of us who identify as female. But what the film makes clear is nothing, nothing was given to women in 1920. Women organized for decades, they struggled against deep oppression, encountered obstacle after obstacle, and fought like hell to win their right to vote. As they say in the film, women weren't given the right to vote, they took it. After immense labor and struggle and the sweat and tears of many women who wouldn't live to see the fruit of their labor, a hundred years ago, our foremothers won this right. They took this right that now so many of us take for granted. Many of these same women fought, compelled not just by their own interests, but by a deep abiding faith that the same God who stands with the underdog was with them in their struggle for justice and equity for all. Friends, we have a lot to reckon with as US, United States citizens, as people of faith, particularly those of us who identify as Christian, many of our ancestors on both fronts have committed terrible atrocities. And we cannot address the problems of our world if we can't see, name, and confront the negative impacts of our, her the, our heritage on each of us. But we also have a heritage of the struggle for justice we have a heritage of journeying towards equity. We, Haven, have a personal heritage of standing up against exclusion and welcoming those who other communities have called unwelcome. Yesterday, I had the opportunity to virtually gather with some of our this year's Haven leaders, the, the team we've been calling the Haven Vision Team. 
And as we shared and reflected both on how hard this year's been, but also on what Haven has been before the pandemic, what we hope it will be after, I couldn't help but be reminded, recognize some parallels to this ancient exile community that have been true, I think, of us, historically, us, Haven, and might be part of our own particular journey of adapting and growing through this current difficult season. Because the truth is, many of us who call Haven home have been through traumatic spiritual terrain before. We have been a part of a church tradition that benefited from a lot of privilege. And at times that meant our practice of faith seemed secure, clear, stable, maybe invulnerable. And then trauma came. We found ourselves excluded because of our sexuality, our gender identity, our politics, our race, or because of our view of gender roles. Sometimes that exclusion was quiet but clear, punctuated by awkward silences, unreturned phone calls. Sometimes it was loud and contentious and heartbreaking. For many of us, it might have been natural, perhaps, to just walk away from faith altogether. But for whatever reason, we found we couldn't do that. Something about this faith, particularly for many of us, something about this story of Jesus, something about encounters we knew we had had with the divine as revealed through this person, something about the Jesus who hung out with outcasts and, and stood with scapegoats, even becoming a scapegoat himself, something about this Jesus still drew us. It wasn't about entitlement. It was no longer from a place of privilege or, or easy assumptions that we could encounter this Jesus and it would just make everything perfect. Instead, we found ourselves in the places of wonder and mystery, kind of like the Gospels tell us that Jesus' own friends found themselves in the wake of the trauma of his death. In those resurrection stories, sometimes they're able to recognize him. Sometimes they just feel themselves drawn to the feel of him, even though they can't fully comprehend who is in their midst. For those of us who found ourselves still drawn to that story, we found ourselves united together. And it's been comforting at times, that story, that process. It's also been frightening. We found the truths we once saw as foundational shift beneath our feet. That's a profoundly destabilizing place to be. But like the exiles before us, we have also found a shared identity in our experience. Our experience of being exiled, but also this sacred unity as we explore together our understanding of a story we're still somehow a part of a grander story that we understood before, that grander than we ever understood before, of a love so deep and profound for the whole world that it is committed to the renewal of all things, even our troubled nations, our broken religious systems, our fractured communities. In this moment of immense 2020 exile, like the exiles before us, 
I believe, Haven, we are called collectively to look beyond our present trauma and remember the bigger story we're a part of. This is not so that we deny our present reality. This is not a way to wish it away. I believe this is what we need so we can face it head on and move to meet the challenges ahead, come what may. Finally, this brings me to the final piece of this exile's legacy I want to consider today as we end. As the exiles develop this new collective identity, how does that impact how they live? That's the third takeaway. The community cultivates practices to reinforce their common identity. They cultivate practices to reinforce the common identity. Many of us, if we know anything about the practice of Judaism, we're going to know a few core parts of Jewish practice. I'll just put them up. This is not all of it, but I'm just going to say these are three core parts I think most of us would identify. Male circumcision, the observance of the weekly Sabbath, and participation in a local synagogue. All of these practices in Judaism have deep roots in the exile. Historians make it clear, okay, males were circumcised in Israel and Judah long before the exile. But that was actually true of most men living in that part of the world, okay? The, the followers of Yahweh were not the only ones to practice male circumcision in that, in that area. But in Babylon, that was a unique practice. That set the exiles apart. Families in Babylon did not typically cut off their sons' foreskins. And this made the practice take on deeper significance than it had even had before. Now, circumcision was not just the way people dealt with their privates. It was an active choice to resist cultural assimilation and live into a collective identity of those who were the unique descendants of Abraham. Abraham had been circumcised, the story says, as a sign of the covenant with God, so we're going to be circumcised with the hope for that same covenant. Sabbath practice also became much more ritualized in the exile. Again, the Sabbath had been part of life in Israel and Judah, but now it was a countercultural choice to take a day off from work and participate in this communal rest and prayer. It wasn't like everyone was just doing it. That was a choice. That was an act of worship. And then finally, the synagogue developed in this era. That replaced the sacrificial life of the temple. It was less cultic as historians describe things. It was not about animals being killed to appease an angry deity. Rather, the synagogue developed as a place you could go to connect with others on the Sabbath or through the week and learn the stories that were shaping your practice of faith, the stories of Torah. While there were surely earlier versions of these practices, the gathering to learn Torah, observing the Sabbath, circumcision, it, uh, when it's in the exile, it's in the exile that these practices become ritualized, laying the foundation for the forms we know today. And that is why scholars would refer to this era, the exile, as the beginning of the religion we call Judaism. It's the religion of those who'd been exiled from Judah and learned to adapt their practice of faith beyond sacrifices in a temple. Now, as we struggle with the exile of 2020, I think we too are in need of some collective practices that can ground us in our common identity and give us ways to remain connected and working together to combat the challenges ahead. I hope what we're doing here on Sundays is a part of that, but more is needed. 
More is needed for us personally to, to weather the challenges of prolonged social isolation this pandemic has presented. Recently, the New York Times just ran a story, we're all socially awkward now, it was called, speaking to the atrophying of social skills that is happening on a massive scale. And it's natural when, we're, when we go through prolonged isolation. And in the story, they look at folks who've experienced extreme isolation you know, before, whether people in prison, uh, astronauts in space, uh, researchers in remote places like Antarctica. And they ask the question, how do those people do when they return? And it's really, it really is dependent. Some people have a really hard time re-entering social experiences. Their, their, mus their social muscles have atrophied. They say that those who do best in the long run tend to be people who work to cultivate during the isolating experience some connection with those they're separated from on a consistent basis. So the prisoner who talks through the cell wall does better. The astronaut who, who regularly connects with a family member virtually does better. In our case, even committing to a regular practice of like texting a couple people on a regular basis could be really fundamental. We also need practices that connect us to the works of justice that are so desperately needed right now. Works that combat systemic racism, um, income inequality, the threats to our democracy, ecological devastation. I have been heartened by the conversations we've been having as a community through our documentary discussions, through this book cl club we're starting. I've also been grateful to see people participating in collective actions, even, even with all the challenges of the pandemic. And I encourage all of us to keep finding places we can partner with others, people in the Haven community and beyond, to move these initiatives forward. And finally, I want to invite each of us to stay present to ourselves as we seek practices in this moment that can help each of us reconnect with our spirits, with the divine who is beyond our present circumstances. For some of us, that might mean um, continuing or recovering like a regular traditional spiritual practice, prayer, fasting, scripture reading, meditation, journaling. For others, it might mean consistently making time to do other things that feed our soul, like gardening or hiking or running, or for me, taking a long bath. That is a deep spiritual practice on my behalf. Whatever practices we engage to keep our spirit alive and try to connect with the divine one we seek, may we find solace and hope in them. Because Haven, we have been in exile. We continue to be in exile. But the good news is that the spiritual tradition we emerged from has had many exiles. And through them, it has not perished, but it has become resilient. May we too find ourselves adapting to the needs of the moment we are in. May we allow ourselves to feel our vulnerability where we need to feel it. May we examine the stories we've been telling and let them evolve where they need to evolve. And may we cultivate individually and collectively practices that will nurture in us the courage, the stamina, and the faith of our ancestors to rise resiliently to the exile before us, even as we long for the day we can find our way home. Amen. Amen.